with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, therefore, sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you would do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they went they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, preaching and teaching the word of the Lord with many others also. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. I was trying to describe our church uh, to some friends of ours down in Matthews at Carmel Baptist Church. Great church. Love those guys. And um, I was trying to explain to them that we have a traditional liturgy, but we also like to clap and cheer and get a little wild. And I was like, I can't really describe it. We're just weird. And I just want to tell you, I'm so thankful to be a pastor of a weird church. And I love you guys. If this is your first time here, um, you know, welcome. And um, be a part of our, our weird church. It's great. Uh, picking up where we left off last week. If you were not here last week, I'm, I'm really sorry because we're diving straight in to part two. Part one was last week. You need to just on your way home or this afternoon, you need to listen to part one because this is gonna be the other side of the coin that I started sharing last week and I have no time to regurgitate the beautiful truth that I showed you last week. So I'm so glad that you got to travel and I'm so glad that you got to sleep in and uh, whatever else it was. But if you don't go back and listen to last week, you're gonna miss it, okay? So please just agree that you will go and listen to it. Um, and I'll try to explain a little bit more as we move forward. But um, diving in today, I found, uh, I found some interesting laws uh, this past week uh, related to worship in the church from really all over the states and, and mostly in the Midwest. And I wanna share some of them with you. Uh, for example, in Idana, Oregon, it is illegal to eat roasted peanuts while attending church services. Yep. In Honey Creek, Iowa, it's against the law to carry a slingshot to church. In Kentucky, all of you are like, oh no, yeah, yeah, got my slingshot. Um, in Kentucky, it's against the law to use snakes during religious services. And we all say amen to that. Um, makes a lot of sense. This one is my favorite though. In Blackwater, Kentucky, it is against the law to tickle a woman under her chin with a feather duster during a church service. 
I'm not making this up. And, and the penalty for such a heinous crime is a $10 fine and a day in jail. So this is a real law. And, and it just makes me, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in, in the churches in Blackwater, Kentucky. Like, why did they have, you don't make laws unless there's a problem that you need to fix. So were guys just showing up to church with feather dusters? Like, you know, one has the gift of tongues, one has the gift of spirit, one has the feather duster, and he's just tickling all of the ladies' chins. I don't, I have no idea. Um, here's the thing about laws, though, and this is why I, I share this with you. Um, a lot of laws, especially those, look ridiculous to us because we're on the outside looking in. I mean, we weren't in Blackwater. Who knows what was going on in Blackwater? But for the people in those churches, I would imagine that those laws felt weighty. I would imagine that they felt important, even necessary for the safety and the sanctity of their worship. Uh, Tertullian, who is one of the early church fathers, came up with some of his own rules like this for his church as well. Maybe you've heard of Tertullian. For example, he made it a law that Christians couldn't go to the theater. And the reason that Christians couldn't go to the theater was because it was connected to, to pagan worship and pagan culture. He also made it a law that Christians couldn't dance uh, because it might ignite sexual passions or something like that. He also made it a law that Christians couldn't use cosmetics, uh, which for them was anything that would make them smell good. And he said that if God wanted us to smell like flowers, he would have planted flowers on our heads. And since he didn't do that, don't perfume your body. It looks crazy from the outside looking in for people like us, but it made perfect sense to Tertullian and his people. Here's the thing. Before you judge Tertullian, before you judge the people of Blackwater, Kentucky, uh, too harshly, you need to realize that Christians in every context, Christians in every culture, including you and including me, uh, do the exact same thing. We all have the propensity to, to shift into legalism and to create laws that the Bible doesn't create for us. Uh, we slide back into this, I've got a list of right and wrong. You know, I've got this cultural list of clean things and unclean things. I've got a list of good and bad. And if, if your list is different than mine, then you're in sin. Or you're at the very least just living like a fool. Even though we're convinced that we're saved by grace, don't we have the tendency of bringing our cultural expectations to bear on the people that we live our lives with, trying to make them measure up to our standards? Like here's, here's some examples that I, I mean, you can think of a million of these, but should we celebrate Christmas and Halloween? You know, as Americans, because uh, they're connected to pagan holidays. Like, so should Christians celebrate these things? Uh, should we play sports on the Sabbath? You know, should you put your kids in travel sports? I'm, I'm wrestling with that right now because I have a kid who's old enough to play travel sports. What should we do? Or should we just rest and do nothing on the Sabbath? Should we run fog machines and, and light shows, you know, during worship? Or should we keep all of the windows open and sing a cappella, Or something in the middle? Should we be weird, right? Um, should we buy luxury vehicles? Or should we buy something cheap and give our money to the poor? What should we do about alcohol and tobacco and R-rated movies? Should we watch movies at all? Because Hollywood hates Jesus and hates Jesus' followers. Like, should we even give them our money? Can Christian men actually wear skinny jeans? 
you know? <laughs> it's a real question. What about beanies at church? Isn't that, isn't that so rude? Shouldn't our hair be combed over nice and neat so we look our best for Jesus? I'll never forget when I was in high school, I was in this men's uh, singing group. And uh, we, had, uh, we had actually won the state championship. And this is, um, this is not to boast, okay? Like, we, we sang an acapella rendition of Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys. And um, we thought we were awesome, but... We won, we won the, the state championship, and so we got to skip school for a week and go to the national competition in South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina. And it was held at this university called Bob Jones University. Now, can, can I just see by a show of hands, has anyone heard of Bob Jones University? Okay, so if you haven't heard of Bob Jones University, you're in for a treat. Um, I have good friends who went there, um, but anyways, it, it is what it is. I don't like Bob Jones University. Um, it, you'll see why in a minute. So we're at this school for a whole week, and we had to go to their chapel service every day of the week. And I'll never forget, I had just become a Christian, like brand new Christian, very raw. And as you will see throughout today, I have, I have issues with rules and authority. Um, but I'll never forget this sermon because the guy got up there and he was railing on rock and roll and he was railing on how we dressed and I will never forget it. He said, if you have gel in your hair and it's spiked up, then you aren't a follower of Jesus. And I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not exaggerating. Um, the grand application of this guy's sermon was that if you were a guy and you had gel in your hair and it was spiked up, that after chapel, you needed to go back to your dorm, you needed to take the gel out and comb your hair over. And, and I remember sitting there like, yo, I'm using twice as much gel. I, I'm gonna do like the craziest spike that I possibly can because what are you talking about? And so I decided to start spiking my hair and then it all fell out, you know? It was like, <laughs> may, maybe he was right. Like this, this is God's punishment to me. Um, the difficulty with our cultural lists is that naturally we want to impose our culture and our standards on everyone else. And we've got our lists of convictions and some of them are way more serious than your spiked hair. Like some of them get into politics and get into policy and, and all. And we've got a list of like, you are clean if you're with me on this and you are unclean if you're against me on this. And we want to impose our expectations on everyone else. And so we say things like, if you're a good Christian, then you will look like, and you will sound like, and you will dress like, and you will behave like, and vote like, and Sabbath like, and shop like, and parent like me. This is the standard that I've created. I love this old poem. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right, and no one else confess. Feel as I feel. Think only as I think. Eat what I drink, eat, and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Guys, when we think like that, and when we act like that, and let's just be honest, we, we all do to some degree, or at least we have. When we do that, the fellowship 
and the body of Christ and the people of God will always be broken. When your cultural expectation collides with my cultural expectation, our community, for better or for worse, more often than not, is shattered. This is the stuff that church splits are made of. One tragic example of this happened when two of the most famous pastors in England split over their cultural expectations of each other. Uh, one of them was Charles Spurgeon, who was uh, one of the most famous pastors in the history of the church, pastored over 10,000 people every Sunday morning, wrote dozens of books, is still today called the Prince of Preachers. The other man was a, a guy by the name of Joseph Parker. His congregation was second in size only to Spurgeon. And early on in their ministries, they were great friends. Early on in their ministries, they collaborated together. They swapped pulpits with each other. And their, their churches, their congregations, though different, were unified. There was a great testimony in the city of London because of that. But then, one day, they had a disagreement. Spurgeon actually accused Parker of being an unspiritual pastor because he regularly attended the theater to watch plays and operas. And then in defense, Parker accused Spurgeon of being a bad pastor and a bad example because he smoked cigars, both privately and publicly, every single day. And I'm like, I like both of these guys. Like, it sounded like a lot of fun to hang out with. But they both had lists of culturally clean activities. Neither of them were measuring up to the other's list. And so they were so famous in London and their disagreement was so heated that the London newspapers reported the whole thing like it was a tabloid affair. And the church in London was divided and the fame of Jesus was diminished because they couldn't agree on their expectations and standards of right and wrong, clean and unclean. Guys, this is a massive issue for us. We see it over and over again throughout the New Testament. Jesus is passionate about the unity of his church. In fact, the night of his death, you know what he prayed for us? John 17, my prayer, my prayer is not for them alone talking about his disciples. My prayer is not just for the disciples that are with me now. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you. On the night of Christ's death, he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And this was his prayer request for us, that they may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that I'm actually the son of God sent from heaven. One author put it this way, the promotion of the gospel of Christ is bound up for better, for worse, with the degree of unity we display to the world. Another author, there's little doubt in my mind that the church has failed to advance, not as much because of disunity over great doctrinal matters, but because of disunity over gray matters. And this raises a massive question. How are we supposed to maintain friendship and pursue fellowship with people who have different cultural standards and expectations and preferences than we do? How are we supposed to open our homes to and break bread with people who have different definitions of clean and unclean? That's the question. This is why I couldn't do it last week, because it's a really big question. 
Look back at the end of this passage that Doug just read for us because it's answered for us in Acts 15, verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that. That's not presumptuous. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We collaborated with each other on this decision. The community of God and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That we give you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality, that you keep yourself from these, you do well, farewell. So how are we supposed to maintain unity and love and fellowship in the church even when we disagree on cultural issues? Two ways from this text. First, we have to recognize that our freedom isn't as important as our fellowship. Okay, did you see that? Because it was in that passage, the apostles, right? We're not gonna put a burden of, of requirements on you. You don't have to carry out the rituals and rites and ceremonies of Judaism in order to follow Jesus. You've been liberated from the burden of the law. We talked about that last week. Again, reference that. But then they say, even though you're free to eat whatever you want, even though you don't have the burden of the law on you anymore, we're asking you not to eat whatever you want for our sake. That's pretty audacious. Even though you have the right to throw out all the ceremonial restrictions of the law, we're asking you to lay down your rights for the sake of our fellowship. See, for a Jewish Christian to break bread with a Gentile was hard enough to fathom. You remember Peter had to get like three visions to believe that he was supposed to eat with a Gentile. And then he, part of that vision was like, you're allowed to eat stuff that was formerly unclean. To be offered food by a Gentile in a Gentile's home that had previously been offered to idols would have been incomprehensible. Like there's no way to fathom this as a Jew. So in th this letter is basically a request to the Gentiles that they would abstain from those things that would make fellowship really, really hard. And to be honest with you guys, I cannot think of a parallel in our culture today. I try. Um, this is so much bigger than alcohol. This is so much bigger than cigars or music style or the theater or dance or anything like this. These were ceremonies and rituals that God himself had established. They were the means through which the Jews gained access to God. It was through these ceremonies. This wasn't one group of weak Christians trying to impose their will on a different group of Christians. Uh, these were people who genuinely loved the Lord and who wanted to please him. We're talking about the 12 disciples and others here. They were deeply conscientious of anything that might offend God. And so it wasn't that they were being disingenuous. It wasn't that they were being legalistic. They just couldn't imagine getting together with a group of believers around a table and eating something that up until that point would have separated them from God. It would have defiled them. And they're saying, this is a, this is a hurdle for us, so please, you don't have to, but for our sake, would you, would you not give us this hurdle? We're, we're trying to make it easy for you, the Gentiles, to come to Christ. We want to put a barrier up for you. Please don't make it hard for us to come to your table. That's what they're saying. Now, there's a huge distinction here between legalistic, disingenuous people trying to impose their will and people who are just trying to follow the Lord to the best of their ability. Huge distinction. But what we see here is that fellowship is more important than freedom. And that's true on both sides. Let me, let me just give you the opposite side. When I was in college, um, the coolest shoes you could wear at my college were the closed-toed Birkenstock sandals. Now, 
if you're in your like mid-30s like I am, you know what I'm talking about. You probably don't know what I'm talking about if you're in your 20s. Um, I don't even know if they still make these shoes. They weren't actually that cool. The reason they were cool at my school was because I went to a really strict Christian college. And we were not like, you had to tuck in your shirt. You had to shave your face every day. Your hair couldn't go over your ears. It was awful. And um, I mean, I loved it, but it was awful. I always say that I could break every rule in the handbook and not ruin my life. So it was the grace of God. Um, but the reason we loved, we called them clogs. The reason we loved clogs is because they were sandals, but they were allowed by our school because they were closed toed because God despises the exposed toes of mankind. <laughs> and, um, and so they were, everyone had clogs. We loved them. We all wore them. The problem though, was that my soccer coach thought that clogs were ungodly and unbecoming of Christian men. So one day after practice, he huddled us all up and he gave us this heated and impassioned speech on the evils of clogs. And uh, I was a freshman at the time, I'm 18, still, still very raw, I do not, don't follow, don't do as I do, do as I say. And I just raised my hand in the back of the huddle and I was like, coach, we're allowed to wear these, they're in the handbook. And he stepped forward, he pushed the people aside and he stuck his finger in my face. He said, Ben Davey, if you ever wear clogs again, you're off the team. So. <laughs> what did I do? I thought long. I thought hard about it. I, I didn't pray. Um, and I realized I didn't like soccer that much anymore, you know? <laughs> Um, you know, clogs, soccer, hands down. I'm wearing the sandals. Um, so a couple of days later, I was walking to class in my Burks, and uh, Coach Jacobs comes riding up to me on his gator. And uh, he just pulls up next to me, and I, and I stop, and, and he looks at me, and he, and he looks down at my shoes. He looks up at me again, and I'm shaking. I mean, I, I'm scared. I know what I'm doing, but I'm still scared, you know. I'm just a kid. And... Uh, he was silent for what felt like an eternity, and then all of a sudden, he just smiled at me. And he said, well, Ben, I'll see you at practice. I was like, I had my cake and I got to eat it. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. Now, I don't know if the Holy Spirit just worked in his heart in that very moment, um, or I don't know if maybe he knew he was wrong all along. I think that's probably what it was. But thankfully, he corrected his error, and I didn't get kicked off the team for wearing perfectly legal, godly shoes. But the reason I share that story with you is because that's what legalism looks like. And, and that's what we would call the tyranny of the weaker brother. Um, the tyranny of the weaker brother is a real thing. It's not a request that flows out of a genuine faith. It's not a request or, or a, um, a, a, an invitation that flows out of a genuine desire to please Christ. It's a personal preference. It's a cultural expectation that is lorded over others in a disingenuous and legalistic way. And so let me be clear, that's not what's going on in Acts 15, and I don't want you to mishear me. The Jewish leaders, which included the apostles, were not trying to lord their preferences over the Gentiles. They just wanted the Gentiles to show them a little bit of grace, make the dinner table a little bit easier for them to gather around. Listen, you're free to eat food with blood. You're free to eat food that's been offered to idols. You're free to eat food that's been strangled. But can you please give up that freedom for our sake? 
so that we can eat your food with you. So let me ask you a question. What would you do in that moment? You American, freedom-loving person, you. I was at the Charlotte uh, game last night, and every time there's the national anthem, you know, the land of the free, everyone just goes crazy. Not so much the home of the brave, but the land of the free. What would you do if someone said, hey, could you give up your freedom so that I could come eat with you? What I love about this story is that when the Gentiles read the request, they responded with joy. Look at verse 31. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They didn't throw it away. They didn't write a rebuttal. They didn't mock the Jews for being weak in their faith. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Guys, your freedom is not as important as our fellowship. The law of liberty isn't as important as the law of love. And the law of love always lays down its rights so that its friend can live. But look how the apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. More on that in a minute. And so as to win those who are not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. That's what love looks like. I'm giving up my freedom for the sake of others so that they can know Christ and experience Christ. I've already got him. I got everything I need. I've already been invited into the beauty of grace. I've already been set free from the burden of the law. I got everything I need in Christ. Now I'm free to give up whatever else I have so that other people can have it too. That's what love looks like. It does not demand the people around us become like us. It compels us to give up our freedom, lay down our rights so that we become like them. Someone once said it like this. People in the church are like porcupines in a snowstorm. Porcupines in a snowstorm. We need each other to stay warm, but we prick each other if we get too close. And since that's true, if we want to get close to each other without hurting each other, we need to recognize that fellowship is more important than freedom, that love always transcends liberty. Okay, so you got that? Hopefully that's clear. That's the first thing we see. Second, if we're going to maintain unity and love and fellowship in the church, even when we disagree on cultural issues, cleanliness and uncleanliness, we have to recognize that our liberty should always be exercised under Christ's lordship. Look back at verse 29. I'm telling you to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, this is important because there are four things mentioned here. And while three of them are ceremonial, one of them is actually moral. Sexual morality is talking about morality here. If you're new to the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you need to know that the law, the law of Moses is split up into two major categories, the ceremonial law and the moral law. The ceremonial law was all about how a sinful group of people could approach a holy God and not get killed on the spot. And so there's dietary restrictions and there's ordinances and there's sacrificial requirements and on and on and on it went. All of the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ. In fact, Hebrews tells us that he's replaced everything. 
The New Testament tells us over and over and over again that since Christ was the final sacrifice and his death on the cross made a way for us to gain access to a holy God, we don't need the ceremonial law anymore. That's really important because people love to say that, that we Christians just like to pick and choose from the Bible. Like we obey some of the stuff, we don't obey other things and we like to eat shrimp and we wear polyester and we get tattoos and all these things, but the Bible says you can't do that. We're like, yes, but this is not confusing. This is not hard. That's part of the ceremonial law. That's done. Christ made a way. He's the final sacrifice. He's the great high priest. We don't have to clean ourselves up anymore to get to a holy God. We're not picking and choosing. If we've ever stopped obeying anything, it's only because he told us that we could in the New Testament. Our liberty always falls under his lordship. Here's the thing about the law, though. While the ceremonial part of the law was temporary, and it was only established until the Christ would come and replace it with himself, the moral part of the law is eternal. It will never be replaced because it's connected to Christ's very nature. His ethics and his morality are true and good and beautiful because he is true and good and beautiful. And they haven't changed because he never changes. And so the reason that the apostles included sexual purity in their letter wasn't because they were picking and choosing from Jesus's ethics. It was because out of all of his ethics, sexual immorality was the most permissive and the most pervasive in the entire Roman Empire. It was just normal to have multiple partners. It was acceptable for men to sleep with their slaves. It was even virtuous for husbands to regular visit prostitutes. Going to a brothel in the Roman Empire was as commonplace as going to the theater. And this is so important for us to grasp today because I think a lot of American Christians think that freedom from the burden of the law means freedom from morality. And it doesn't. Nothing could be further from the truth. The true gospel protects us from Two massive errors, uh, errors, not errors. I don't even know what that is. Errors. Um, the first one I talked about a lot last week and I just mentioned, it's legalism. The true gospel protects us from legalism and it protects us from licentiousness too. So legalism says, if I sin, God won't love me anymore. If I disobey God, he'll reject me. If I fail, if I let him down, he's gonna stop showing his favor to me. We saw last week, the gospel destroys that. Grace destroys that. It's incredible news. And so the true gospel protects us from legalism and the true gospel also protects us from licentiousness. Licentiousness, licentiousness says, since God will always love me, I can do whatever the heck I want. Good to go. I don't have to follow his rules. I don't have to worry about sin. I don't have to change anything about my life because God loves me just the way I am. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Liberty is only true liberty if it is lived out under the lordship of Christ. Otherwise, it's not liberty, it's still bondage. 
It's still slavery to sin, slavery to culture, buying into a false picture of the good life. If we try to separate our liberty from his lordship, we misunderstand and we misapply his invitation into grace. It's like going skydiving. Anybody ever been skydiving before? A couple of you. It's like going skydiving. You get 10,000 feet into the air and you just decide all of a sudden, you know what? The law of gravity doesn't apply to me anymore. I'm free. I'm removing myself from the constraints of the law of gravity. And you say, you know what, bud? Parachute's yours. I don't need it. I'm jumping free, free falling. You jump out of the plane. On your way down, you realize you made a huge mistake. You crash, you die. All because you thought you were free from some law that didn't apply to you. Guys, that's what happens every time we choose to reject the moral law of God. It's intrinsically connected to his character, which means it's intrinsically connected to nature. We don't just break his law. We always break ourselves on his law. I tell my kids not to put their hands in the fire. We have a fire pit out back. Love s'mores. Love roasted marshmallows, but I say, listen, the fire's safe as long as it's there, but if you put your hand in there, you're gonna get burned. That's the law of the fire. It's a law of nature. There's nothing, it doesn't matter how they feel about that law. It's just there. If they decide to ignore my command and break my command, they are breaking themselves, not just my law. They're burning their hand. Guys, the same thing is true of our vision for sexuality. I love how Ray Wortland put it in his book on marriage not too long ago. He said it like this. The key to understanding the sexual wisdom of the Bible is to combine both form and freedom, both structure and liberation. Conservative people love form and restraint and control. Progressive people love freedom and openness and choices. Both see part of the truth, but wisdom sees more. Wisdom teaches us that God gave us our sexuality both to focus our romantic joy and to unleash our romantic joy. When our desires are both focused and unleashed, both form and freedom, our sexual experience becomes wonderfully intensified. A marriage can flourish within both form and freedom because sex is like a fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. Here's the message of the Bible. Keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. That is a law of God that flows out of the wisdom of God that's connected to the character of God and is for your Good. If you choose to exercise your liberty apart from it, you do nothing but burn yourself and break yourself on it. Guys, listen, I'm telling you this because I love you. And my heart breaks for you. And I know I say this a lot, but we're in South End. And I got to say this over and over again because I know you don't believe me. You don't know me, some of you but it breaks my heart like an older brother to a younger sibling, like a father to a child to see you keep on sticking your hand in the fire and burning it and wondering why life's messed up. It breaks my heart. I had three meetings this past week alone with three different guys. 
all become Christians in the last few years. Every single one of them have the same story. They did the South End thing. They did the dating app thing. They did the hookup thing. And, and the amazing news is that God saved all of them. God redeemed all of them. God is renewing all of them as he is with all of us. That is the glorious news of the gospel. It's incredible to watch it firsthand. But to this day, they're still wrestling with some of the mental and relational and emotional and physical consequences of playing with fire outside of the fireplace. And it's the same story over and over and over again. You never just break the law of God, you always break yourself on it. If you wanna thrive and flourish, if you want to live life to the fullest, you need to recognize that your freedom was always meant to be enjoyed under the good leadership of your good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so now the big question becomes, what in the world does that have to do with unity and fellowship in the church? It's not a rabbit trail. We're all, we're in a line here. We're in a straight line. What does this have to do with unity and fellowship in the church? The answer is that when we try to separate our liberty from the lordship of Christ, we become a law unto ourselves. And do you know what happens when you get 300 people who become a law unto themselves all in the same room, trying to be one body with one heart and with one mind and with one spirit? You know what happens? (laughs) Chaos. You get 300 different ideas about what's right and wrong. You get 300 different opinions about what's clean and unclean, 300 different preferences about whose law is best. You do not get unity, you get war. That's what happens when we become a law unto ourselves. The true gospel creates a community of love and of unity and of peace because it places us under the sovereign king and it invites us to thrive and flourish by calling us to submit to his authority. That's how we get along. That's how we fellowship with each other. When we say, I'm not on the throne anymore. I don't get to determine what is good and what is evil. He does and I'm submitting to that. And when we all do that together, we get along. Some of you play instruments. Some of you sang in a choir. Maybe you played in a band, an orchestra, whatever. You know how awful it is when the band is out of tune. Maybe you don't even don't play instruments, but you've heard it before. And, and it's just great. Some of you are like, I sing out of tune. I can't hear that. So you don't even know. But it's terrible if, if you can tell, if you're not tone deaf. Even if just one person is a little bit off, the whole thing sounds terrible. Now, imagine with me for a second that you're, you're playing in an orchestra, you're singing in a choir, and every single instrument is out of tune. How in the world are you gonna fix that problem? If, if you've got a 300 piece orchestra and everyone's tuned to their own little uh, device, how are you gonna fix that problem? Well, let me tell you what you're not gonna do. You're not gonna tune to the person to your right. Because if you turn to the person to your right and that person's tuning to the person to their right and on and on and on for 300 people, you fixed nothing. And anyone who hears you is gonna say, that sounds worse than it did before. That's not how you fix the problem. The same thing's true of our churches as well. <laughs> the only way to unify a group of radically different people 
with all kinds of different cultural backgrounds and cultural expectations and lists of clean and unclean when it comes to gray issues. The only way to do that is to tune our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. If we tune our lives to anyone or anything other than Christ, like our circumstances, what feels good in the moment, what makes sense, what Disney's always like, just listen to your heart, be alone to yourself. Maybe it's the book you read last week. Maybe it's the guru on some podcast you're listening to with all the wisdom. Maybe it's whatever our culture is saying is in vogue right now. This is what love looks like. And you're like, okay, yes, sir, got it. This is what love looks like. And we all come in and we all have different definitions and why can't we get along? Whenever we tune to anything other than Jesus Christ, we'll end up playing all over the place, out of tune and awful to anyone who happens to be walking by and hears it. What if we as a church not only chose to give up our freedom so that we could have fellowship with each other, but also said, listen, I love the freedom of grace, but I also believe in the goodness of God and I believe in the sovereignty of God. And I trust that if he's given us a command, if he's given me a command, it's for my good and I'm just gonna submit to it whether my culture thinks it's cool or not. What if we actually did that? If we tune ourselves to Christ and the gospel of his kingdom, guys, everything would change for the better. Every other voice, every other influence in our lives, including our own, takes a back seat and then he gets the fame and the glory and the honor that he deserves. Guys, it won't just lead to our good as individuals, it'll lead to our good as a community as well. That's what the apostles wanted the Gentiles at Antioch to understand. The true gospel sets us free from the burden of the law. Amen? That was last week. You gotta carry it over. I know it's hard. The true gospel invites us into the beauty of grace. And even more than that, the true gospel calls us to live in a community defined by love. And love is not selfish. Love always lays down its own rights. Love always gives up its own life so that others can thrive and others can live. And so let's retune our hearts again to Christ. Let's reorient our minds again to his gospel. And my prayer for you and for me in this church is that he would get all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise that he is worthy of through this church. Amen? Would you stand with me? I'm gonna invite you to pray, respond to the Holy Spirit. And then afterwards, we'll go to the table. Let me just give you some prompts. If there's a sin you need to confess that you still haven't confessed, please do that. If there's a promise you need to believe, ask the Spirit to let that promise rest in your heart so that you can hold it there. If there's a step that you need to take, take it today. If there's somebody that you need to confess sin to, do that. If you need to be reconciled to someone, be reconciled. Would you bow your heads and then we'll go to the table together.